Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. This week, we'll be taking a look at Barclays as it continues its battle with an activist investor, Goldman Sachs and its Marcus online savings product, and finally over to UBS in Switzerland and an AGM rebellion. First of all, though, to Barclays. David, you were at the AGM last week where Edward Bramson, the activist investor, has been piling pressure on the bank. It was slightly damp squibbish, was it, on that front? Well, the big question heading in was whether Mr. Bramson was going to turn up himself. We knew that he had registered, but that was true last year as well, and he didn't show. And he half turned up, if you like. He arrived in the foyer just a few minutes before the meeting kicked off and gave an impromptu press conference where he predicted a heavy defeat. Indeed, it was a crushing defeat. Fewer than 6% of other shareholders ended up backing his election to the board. Well, we've got a couple of clips from that impromptu press conference. Apologies for the sound quality, but David, you did a very good job of (laughs) grabbing those sound bites. First, let's hear where he's kind of admitting to that uh, defeat, but at the same time claiming credit for Barclays having made some significant changes in the past few months, including a new chairman, but more recently the exit of the head of the investment bank, Tim Throsby. We know that we haven't got a majority of the vote, and quite likely a fairly heavy vote against. We've known it for a couple of weeks, and the reason we've known it is that we've had calls from some of the major shareholders that you would need to get a majority. And what essentially they've told us is that they generally think that the points we're making are valid and important, but they've had a personal appeal from the new chairperson saying that he thinks that he should get an opportunity to fix the thing, if you like himself without our assistance and you know we don't agree but i think that's a fair position so people basically said to us look we're glad you're doing this but we think it's fair to give the new person an opportunity and we've been talking to barclays for about a year and nothing happened but in the last six weeks after we called the vote there's been quite a lot of change and i think it's positive uh, in the sense that it's finally a public recognition that the strategy isn't working and things need to be done. Uh, Let's now hear a a second clip where Mr. Bramson piles on the pressure on the new chairman, Nigel Higgins. If Higgins wants to take a shot at it himself, that's fine with us. The only thing we would say is that having been given a chance to do that, we're expecting to see results. Some of the numbers that we see are not encouraging, and so we'll give it a quarter or two and see what happens. We haven't really wanted to make a point of it, but... While this has been going on, stocks gone from 260 to 160, and the investment bank might be part of it, but the only thing we're interested in is finally getting the value that's in Barclays released. 
and the current strategy hasn't done it. So the strategy needs to change, and the investment bank is probably part of that. What do you say to those who think that you haven't provided enough of a detailed alternative strategy? That's one of the complaints I hear from the um, investors. If we were on the board of directors, we'd give them as much information as they need. I don't think that a public forum is a good place to talk about details of strategy, but we've certainly talked to Barclays about it. And, uh, but you know, they've got an opportunity now to go fix it. So I think uh, that's what Higgins needs to do. So where does that leave everything, David? Is Barclays off the hook or is it only a short-lived reprieve for Nigel Higgins and Jess Daly, the chief executive? Well, it's kind of hard to overstate the feeling of triumph inside Barclays at the moment. They really are incredibly confident he won fewer votes than even the most pessimistic predictions. However, Mr. Bramson thinks that this is a sort of temporary problem for him. And it all centers on the fact that Nigel Higgins made a personal plea to other shareholders that went down very well, which was basically give me a shot to fix it first. Mr. Bramson very negative on Mr. Higgins's chances of managing to fix it and so thinks couple of quarters, let it die down, let Mr. Higgins fail if you like, and then he'll be back with a vengeance. And I guess a share price move up or down will be a pretty strong proxy for who's winning on this. We'll keep it closely under review. Thanks very much for that, David. But I'm going to stay with you for our second topic, a look at Goldman Sachs, where we carried a story on Monday about the bank's Marcus Online Savings Bank product in the UK, obviously also exists in the US as well. And there have been delays to the rollout plan of Marcus in Europe. Yes, so uh, the FT understood that Marcus would be launching in Germany this year, and that has been delayed we're told there are two primary reasons. The first is the delay to Brexit. So Goldman is setting up a new entity in Germany so that it can continue to service clients in the Eurozone after Brexit. And it had planned to take deposits through its Marcus brand in Germany in part to fund that entity. And now that this delay has occurred, that is kind of less of a pressing concern. And so they can afford to wait a little while. The other thing is, like a lot of banks, they are delaying investment plans, if you like, costs under pressure. And so why spend the money now if you don't have to? But it is startlingly successful in terms of raising money, isn't it, Marcus? It's got up to, what is it, something like $40 billion globally? I think it's 46 globally and 10 of that in the UK and the balance in the US. It has been more successful than even they imagined, I think. The big question is what they do next. Everybody is sort of quite impressed at their ability to take deposits, but nobody really believes that Goldman is just going to use this to capitalise its trading operations. They think that Goldman will start offering products of some kind. Already we've seen them enter into a credit card deal with Apple in the US. That could be coming to the UK soon, as could products aimed not at your average consumer, but at sort of high net worth individuals that might want to put their millions with Goldman. We will watch with interest. Thank you very much. Let's move on to our third and final topic. And Stephen, you are just back from a few weeks in Zurich at the tail end of which you attended the UBS AGM, which was a pretty rebellious affair this year. It was. They suffered first a mini-revolt against pay with about a fifth of shareholders registering their disapproval at only very slight falls in executive and the bonus pool for last year, despite a quite sharp drop in the share price. 
but more of a serious issue for the executives themselves is that they failed to get a majority of shareholders backing a vote which would have discharged them from legal responsibility for the previous year's accounts. Now, the main reason that shareholders voted against this was because the executives chose to fight a tax evasion case in France. Instead of trying to come to some kind of settlement where they were paid a fine and a penalty and admit a little bit of wrongdoing, they fought them in court and now they've been slapped with a 4.5 billion euro combined fine and penalty. Now, on the day the chairman said that there was no prospect of them being able to settle for an economically responsible amount, they had no option to go to court. But clearly shareholders and a few of their proxy advisors like ISS didn't believe that and they've suffered quite a major setback here. Now, the shares have recovered slightly this year, but they also had a pretty bad set of first quarter results where both wealth management and investment banking revenues fall. Usually the argument for having them together is that one supports the other when they have a bad period, but that didn't happen. So yeah, all is not well over in Zurich. On the point about having been voted against this whole idea of discharging them from their legal responsibilities, what does that mean in practice? Is it anything more than a protest vote, a symbolic gesture? It's largely a symbolic gesture, but underlying it, as the chairman Axel Weber acknowledged, he said, this is a reflection of your concern about uncertainty surrounding the court case, and you want to keep all possible legal options open. Now, this could include holding executives responsible for not managing a bank in a responsible way. But in reality, it's unlikely the shareholders will ever sue any of the executives. But the fact that proxy advisors have told them that they should vote against it, and the majority of them either abstained or voted against shows how serious this case is. And it's also a proxy, isn't it, for the growing unease with the direction that UBS is taking, the chief executive coming under increasing pressure and the share price reflecting that. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, before almost anybody else, they decided to pursue a model of growing wealth management abroad, especially in Asia, having a strong domestic Swiss bank, but really radically shrinking down the investment banking side, which is, of course, more volatile and less profitable. They've kind of lost that first mover advantage now. They used to be trading above book value. They've slipped below that. And a lot of people are arguing the gap is closing with Credit Suisse, their crosstown rival. And they've fallen quite far behind Morgan Stanley, who, of course, copied Sergio Amotti, the CEO's model at UBS, but appear to be doing it a bit better over in the US, backed by a much more buoyant domestic market. Again, one to watch. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David and Stephen here in the studio. Our thanks in his absence to Edward Brempson for his contribution to our podcast. And thank you for listening. Do take a look at our latest subscription offer, if you're not already a subscriber, at ft.com slash offer. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.